Our scripture reading this evening is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. That can be found on page 727 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. We will also be reading Lord's Day 14. And that can be found on page 215 of your forms and prayers book. Before reading God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you and we pray we would do this with reverence and awe and that you would speak to us. Preserve the the truth of your word and may what would be said this evening be right and and, and interpret your word and apply it correctly and also be with those who hear all of us in our hearts that we would take and receive it and respond in submission to this word. We ask this in your name. Amen. We begin in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17, where we read of the sign of Emmanuel, of the promise of what would come. Isaiah 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Thus ends the reading from Isaiah. We will take this up again and consider the context there later in the message, but for now understand the promise that was given as a sign to the people of the Lord's deliverance that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and that his name would be Emmanuel. Now we turn our attention to Lord's Day 14 as a summary of God's word and what it teaches about what we confess and profess our faith in. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin." How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. People of God, what would you say to someone who came to you and asked these questions or even just stated, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but why do we have to hold to some nonsense or myth that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? Those who might say you can believe in Jesus as your Savior without believing in the virgin birth. 
In other words, why does the virgin birth matter? Why does it make it into the Apostles' Creed? Why do we confess faith in that and hold to that as a fundamental aspect of what we confess and profess about us? The Heidelberg Catechism rightly links this to the very fact that he is our mediator, which would then mean if we tamper with the virgin birth, we are tampering with Christ's own ability to be our mediator, and indeed that's what we do when we start meddling with this doctrine. It's not uncommon to hear these statements or these arguments in our day and age, especially as you follow the ebb and flow of church history or the ebb and flow of faithfulness of certain churches where perhaps it at one time is firmly grounded and and strong, rooted in Scripture, bowing to its authority, holding these things to be truth. And then as time progresses and goes on and and a certain liberalizing takes place, we begin to to loosen what is the requirement, to to change what what is the idea of a miracle, what is the authority of Scripture, what must we hold to. This kind of liberalism has caused many churches to to walk away, to become false churches, or to become very weak in their profession. Denominations that at one time had been strong but had lost this faith, something like the Presbyterian Church in the United States, where they had allowed its ministers and theologians to say that the virgin birth was not essential to the Christian faith. But why? Why would we say that it is essential to the Christian faith? Why must we hold firm to what the Catechism says and to what the Apostles' Creed says when we profess our faith that he was conceived and that he was born? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why must we hold to that? And I specifically put that as well to young people here this evening. As you grow, as you take up the maturity in the church and your roles in the church, this is what you must defend. And it is is in with the passing of generations that this can be lost, that the strength with which we hold to what we believe can diminish. And so I put it before you, it it is your responsibility, as it is all of our responsibility, to know what we believe and why, to know why it would be essential to confess faith in the virgin birth and all that comes into play with that. If we were to deny its truth, the virgin birth is strangely, not, not perhaps not strangely enough, but the virgin birth is often one of the many things that liberalism would have us ignore and throw away. They would say it's just a myth. They would also say, this is very common in talking about it, that Christianity just picked this up from many of the ancient religions and myths that had virgin conceptions and births. Now, that's actually a false statement when you look at the history of it. When you look at mythologies and what these things said, it isn't actually like what we confess here, but that's what will be put in front of you. It was just adopted. But it's a myth. It's supernatural, they would say. But it always comes back to God's word. It always comes back to the authority of God's word and standing to it, holding to it. And as far as we hold to God's word and its authority, we will stand firm. And the church will be firm insofar as we undermine it and lose its authority and lose what we place it as, the infallible word of God. When we lose that, we lost the church. And we lose those in the church. How important is this? Well, it's a, single, it's a sing, simple aspect of the authority of God's word. And that's why, at least in part, it's essential for us to say it because this is what God's word says. Scripture is always the key. 
And we'll see what scripture has to say about it in our points this evening, that the virgin birth is necessary for the incarnation. That's our first point. And our second point, the virgin birth is necessary for salvation. First, necessary for the incarnation. Necessary for Jesus to take on flesh. And the virgin birth is essential to that, that he could take on human flesh. We need the virgin birth for it to work and for him to be our mediator. You see, what will happen is if you tamper with the virgin birth, what you will tamper with is the quality of the mediator. They're connected. And insofar as there is the Holy Spirit working in the Virgin Mary and preserving from sin, and yet there isn't a traditional or ordinary generation going on, the Spirit preserves us, and we have a mediator who is able to be our intercessor, our perfect high priest, our substitute. And yet, if we deny the supernatural activity, if we say, no, this was just a man conceived and born in the ordinary way, or that the Holy Spirit did something else through a husband and wife coming together, we've actually lost our mediator. The wording of this question and answer is very important. You can also find this same topic addressed in the Belgic Confession, Article 19. Question and answer 35 that we deal with this evening provides an explanation for how the eternal Son of God became incarnate or became man. It says there that the eternal Son of God, and then it qualifies it, who is and remains true and eternal God. So what what we see there is there is not a loss of his divinity here when he takes on his humanity, when he assumes that humanity, there's no lessening of the divine nature. We also see that it is the eternal Son of God who does this. If you could phrase it this way, impersoned in Jesus Christ, or or the one, the person who is Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God is the one who assumes the nature it's not as if Jesus Christ was a new person created that was, that was disconnected or just merely, merely worked on by the Son of God. No, he was the Son of God who took this nature to himself. And that even that phrasing is important, that he took it to himself, or we could say assumed it. There was not a transformation of the divine nature, nor did he take to himself what was less than or not authentic. He took to himself... He assumed an authentic human nature. And then it gives the reasons or the the mechanisms for how that was through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become, and notice this, David's true descendant. Catechism, it almost seems like that, that they're throwing that in there. Why, Why add that, that he would be David's true descendant? Well, because this one to come is the descendant of David. He needs to fulfill the promises of God that God had made through the covenant with David. The one to come that would reign for all eternity would come from David's own seed. So not only was it important that the virgin birth be the virgin birth, that the Holy Spirit and this holy conception worked on the Virgin Mary, but it also would be that the flesh from which Christ was taken matters, that he is the descendant of David, even in his human nature, He is the promised one. And then it says, like his brothers in all things, so genuine, like us, except for sin. So that's the basic rundown of this question and answer. He is the eternal one who has assumed our nature. 
And it was through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, you see then what the Holy Spirit was doing. By the working of the Holy Spirit, the Son took this nature in such a way that he received our weak flesh, and yet without the the, the penalty of sin, without the, the guilt of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit and his involvement in part was doing, that our Savior, our mediator, would have a human nature that wasn't sinful, though weak. He was like us in every way, though not sinful, though not guilty. And you start seeing why our mediator and where he comes from matters. He needed to be sinless. He needed to be the Son of God to assume this nature. This human nature was from its beginning free from all sin. And the Son of God, who existed eternally, united himself to this nature prepared in Mary's womb. And why is that important? It means Jesus was not included in the fall under the covenant of works. It means he had no original guilt and was not contaminated by any pollution of sin. He didn't fall under the guilt of Adam's sin because he was before Adam. Isn't that interesting? He's the eternal son. He was not represented by Adam. He existed prior and before him. That's why it's important that he was the one to become man. He falls outside of Adam's representation, though he can take to himself a genuine and true human nature. The Son of God wasn't represented by Adam, but nonetheless he receives that human nature outside of the ordinary generation because the virgin birth. He received that human nature through Mary, but it wasn't through the the mechanisms of the ordinary generation. Why, Why does that matter? When a man and a woman conceive, it is a new life created. And it is at that time that God creates a a spirit and soul with that own conception. In ordinary generation, a husband and wife produce a byproduct of who they are, and the Lord creates the soul within them. For Jesus, or the Son of God, to have just inserted himself in this, what if it was an ordinary process, what he would have been doing would have been hijacking something in a nature that wasn't his own. Because what comes together with a man and a woman, it is their offspring, but the Son of God wasn't the offspring of these men and women. And God did not thwart the process that would be a new person even at conception. It was only through one nature, Mary, that he received his human nature. And the Holy Spirit preserved that from sin. And as well in this way was David's true descendant, not only through Mary, but through the adoption of Joseph. He was the descendant of David. If Jesus was conceived in the normal way as an offspring of husband and wife, he would bear the guilt of sin. If this were the process, the Son of God could not just just impose himself there because he would be assuming a nature that wasn't his. It would be some kind of, if you have heard this expression, adoptionism. Some kind of the Lord just took a human and had and adopted him to be the son, but that's not the case. The Son of God assumed a human nature. In response to those who deny the virgin birth, we need to see why they deny it. We need to understand what's at stake. First, they deny it because it's the miraculous. That's really the the simplest 
liberal explanation for why the virgin birth couldn't be. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. It couldn't happen. They come at it with a a radical naturalism, seeking some natural, as it were, explanation for everything and denying anything that is supernatural. They try to explain everything that way, and yet it, it fails to accomplish their goal, for a radical naturalism can't even account for anything to exist. They press and take this warped idea of what science is and say, we've proven that can't happen, and yet science is something that must be observable and repeatable, and admittedly, creation itself can't be either. And so it fails to even understand how anything could exist. It, it comes at it with a preconception, a presupposition that there is no supernatural activity. But you know what the problem with that is as well? It requires supernatural knowledge and wisdom to, to confirm that. To say, nowhere can there ever be a divine action or the miraculous or something supernatural. That would require you to be able to monitor all things, all existence, to know everything, to be able to make such a statement. It requires a supernatural being to say it. It denies itself. And that's the way they come at it. They deny the miraculous. And that's why we reject it as well, because we do not. To deny the virgin birth, and this is the other issue, is to deny what Scripture says, and that's the more important one. Scripture clearly teaches that the miraculous occurs. Scripture clearly teaches that Mary had known no man. She's confused, remember, when when the angel comes to give her that message. She says, how can this be? She has known no man and knows no man. There is no relation like that occurring, so how can this be? And the answer, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's quite clear, it's unmistakable, that's what Scripture says. And so, as some want to say, well, we can deny the virgin birth because it's just a story, it's just a figure of speech, it's just some other expression. Well, that's not true. Or they'll want to compartmentalize Scripture and sort of divide it up into where's the authority of Scripture? Where is it true and right? And they want to say it's right and true in redemption and salvation, but not insofar as history and what might have happened. And so what's essential is to say that you believe in Christ, but we don't actually have to hold to the virgin birth. Hold to him as Savior. That's what you should have, but you don't need this miraculous conception. And you see, they they lose it all. Or wasn't, if it wasn't the virgin birth, if it wasn't through the operation of the Holy Spirit, we have no foundation and grounds to have a mediator who isn't guilty or a mediator who isn't like us. It is to deny Scripture. It is to deny what Isaiah had prophesied. This is where we turn our attention to the reading of the text. Isaiah 7.14 had said, "...the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." The situation and context to this promise in Isaiah was when Syria and Israel had tried to force the king of Judah, that was Ahaz, to join them in a coalition against Assyria. They were trying to build forces and go and assault Assyria, defend themselves against this superpower, and they wanted Judah to join them, and, and, and Judah had refused. And so they had Israel, the king of Israel, and, and Syria had come against them. They were waging war against them to bring them under their umbrella. And so what Judah did, and wrongfully so, it looked for deliverance 
at Assyria and had asked for them for help. And Assyria provided it, but at a steep cost. They became, in, in essence, a vassal state to the king of Assyria. Rather than trusting God, Ahaz had appealed to Assyria for help. And in the midst of this crisis, the prophet Isaiah comes to the king, and with a word of encouragement and invitation, he calls him to trust God, and he even places before him, ask for a sign. And it can be as deep as it must be to assure you that I will deliver you, that I will protect you. There's the context. Ahaz, king of Judah, ask of me what you will. And this is, this is one of those times you read Ahaz's response, I won't put the Lord to the test. He's being too, shall we say, holy for his own good. The Lord had just said, make a request of me, make of it what you will. Let it be as deep as it must be to assure you that I am faithful and will be with you. And rather than ask, rather than, than bow before the Lord, he makes no request. And yet, God gives one anyway. Ahaz refused to trust God and receive a sign, but God's commitment to rescue his people remained. And so he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's the depth of the sign. And so now you see, as it's placed in that context, how wondrous the miraculous is. This was a sign given to assure them, and it was to be a big sign. In fact, we could almost say it's a sign so big, so many won't still believe it today. So many will deny it. It's too supernatural. It can't happen. But it did. And the context of that was an assurance that when the virgin conceived... The Lord's deliverance was there. It was the assurance that he delivers, that he protects. Isaiah's reference there is likely had an immediate fulfillment. There is much debate over these texts, not because it's not clear or understandable, but because those don't want to accept it, try to, to bring doubt to it. There was likely an immediate fulfillment there. In the flow of the narrative, Isaiah's own son probably fulfilled a partial Fulfillment to this prophecy that, that Isaiah's wife did conceive and there was a son born as this partial down payment of it, referring to this greater fulfillment that would come. And so it's a double fulfillment. And in this way, the prophecy makes complete sense in its original context, but other factors within the context also show you that there's more to be expected. That name itself, the name Emmanuel as well as the description of this Emmanuel in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we know very well. It's the same person being referred to, this Emmanuel who would come. These point forward to a birth that would be of the virgin, of another child. Jesus was the true and final embodiment of Emmanuel, God with us. He was that sign of assurance that God would be with his people, deliver them from their enemies. The virgin birth is necessary because Scripture says it. Scripture had promised it. The virgin birth is necessary because God gave it as that sign to be as deep as it must be to assure that he was with his people. Virgin birth is necessary for the incarnation. It's necessary for it to even take place. 
it's necessary for it for as far as Scripture reports on it and what it reveals about it. And secondly, the virgin birth is necessary for salvation. Question and answer 36 asks, as the, the catechism does, it's this practical question, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? And I hope we truly appreciate this answer. He is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. We have a mediator. We don't have a mediatrix. It's not as if there was the immaculate conception of Mary, as Catholics might say, or that Mary didn't even die but went to heaven, that she was conceived herself without sin. That's not the answer. It's the way some would like to try to preserve it. Well, see, that just kicks the can down the road because you keep going to the same inevitable problem. You, need, you, need an, you would need an unending line of immaculate conceptions to prove that. But that's not actually what truly you need. You need the Holy Spirit and the Virgin as was promised. We have Jesus as our mediator, and that's such a blessing. Such a blessing because this, this question and answer, as, as reporting on what the Bible says, is always interested to show us that Jesus was one of us, and in fact is one of us, a man. He assumed that nature, thus can be our mediator. And that's a comfort and a peace. We experience it in, in minor ways in our own day-to-day life. Those times when you're asked or called to do something that you're not able to, you're, you're, you're not equipped to do. And, and one who, who might tell you, you know, I know you don't know how to do this, let me do this for you. The one who interjects or interposes himself to help. You know, you're supposed to give this presentation, I'll do it. You need help here, you don't know what to do, I'll do it for you. And not just one who will step in, but one who is competent to do so. You see, even in a minor way, you can sense the relief when it's this thing you didn't want to do, something you didn't even think you were capable of doing, and one comes and does it for you. That's a a small but important aspect of Jesus as our mediator. But he represents us before God. In God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. I love the usage of conceived there again. Jesus wasn't conceived in sin, but we certainly are. He covers with his innocence and perfect holiness, preserved from sin because the Holy Spirit had had kept that nature from sin. Our mediator is the Son of God, but also man. Otherwise, we would have no access. This mediator, though great beyond measure, is divine in excellence. He's the one who loves us so much that there is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than he does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us, and made himself completely like his brothers. This conception is what we would call the beginning of the state of Christ's humiliation. The state of humiliation. We use that terminology to describe the way in which Christ suffered and the pains of his life. 
The humiliation begins here as he takes to himself a weak nature, as he takes to himself the form of a servant. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says this well. Christ was not a human hero whose motto is always higher, who overcomes every obstacle and finally achieves the pinnacle of his fame. On the contrary, he descended always lower and deeper and more intimately into our fellowship. The way down into these depths was marked by tears or steps, conception, birth, the lowly life in Nazareth, baptism and temptation, opposition, disparagement, and persecution, agony in Gethsemane, condemnation before Caiaphas and Pilate, crucifixion, death, and burial. This is the beginning of that process. He is our mediator who covers us with that perfection and innocence that we need. The virgin birth gives us that perfect, innocent mediator, not because Mary's flesh was perfect, but because The Holy Spirit acted and the Son assumed, took to himself our nature. So as we end, why is virgin birth necessary? Why is it essential? Why, if we deny it, do we lose what is fundamental to faith? First, it's the doctrine of Scripture. It's essential because of the doctrine of Scripture. If Scripture errs here, why doesn't it err anywhere? If we can't believe it here, can we believe it anywhere? Scripture says that it must be true, and if we tamper here because we can't believe the miraculous or what's too great a sign, we deny the authority of Scripture, we've lost Scripture itself, we've lost the faith. And tragically, that's what we see played out all the time in this world and in churches. We must hold to the doctrine of Scripture. Why is the virgin birth necessary? Well, it's the humanity of Christ. Jesus was really born. He really became one of us. He really had our nature. It wasn't some adoptionism. It wasn't some fake. It wasn't some model. It was genuine and true. Why is the virgin birth necessary? It's the sinlessness of Christ. If he were born of two human parents, how could he have been exempted from the guilt of Adam's sin? How could he have become the head of the human race? And it would seem only an arbitrary act of God that Jesus could be born without a sinful nature. And yet Jesus' sinlessness as the new head of the human race and the atoning Lamb of God is absolutely vital to our salvation. Why is the virgin birth necessary? Well, it's the nature of grace. What do I mean by that? The virgin birth actually assures and puts before us clearly that you can't save yourself and that humanity never could. There was never going to be one to come from our descendants, from our people, through ordinary generation that would save us. It wasn't going to happen. It puts before us again that it requires the supernatural activity of God to save us. It teaches us that salvation is by God's act and not by human effort. Interestingly enough, it is a depreciation of the divine nature of Christ that actually flows into this that would reject the virgin birth. Because what, what you end up saying is we don't need the divine and supernatural to save us. There's another way. We didn't need the Son of God to have that happen and to take that. But we did. Why is the virgin birth necessary? It's the flow of redemptive history. 
This birth is one of a long list of supernatural births in God's word. It stands as the culmination and fulfillment to many. The the seed of the woman, as promised in Genesis, her seed had always been threatened by the death of that line. Often it would be the key figures, the key key parents or the key women of the, the, the flow of redemptive history who would be barren or with a threat of barrenness, who would be past the age of childbearing, who would face these threats, and there would be some kind of supernatural birth along the way that would, would ensure the fulfillment and continuation of the promised line of God. And this is the fulfillment of that, the final supernatural birth. Jesus' virgin birth represents that final and most supernatural of all of them and the promises of God. So to review those, why was it essential? Why must we believe in the virgin birth? Why is it necessary? It's the doctrine of Scripture. It's the humanity of Christ. It's the sinlessness of Christ. It's the nature of grace. It's the flow of redemptive history. Young people, that's why this matters. Church history shows how important this is. Church history shows how you might lose your reputation among others to hold to this. You might, be, you might end up excommunicated from the church for holding to such a, such a firm view of Scripture. This happened to Machen, holding to these things, and this was in many ways the beginning of the OPC, that he wouldn't compromise, he would hold to Scripture, he would hold to the essentials of the faith. It's important that we know it and believe it and profess it, because as the Catechism says, without this we lose our mediator. But with the virgin birth and the promises of God, we truly have a mediator who covers us in his innocence preserves us and protects us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as well as faith in it. For we know we would not be able to hold to belief and and be assured of the certainty of supernatural activity, of the miraculous, were it not that you gave us that faith. We ask, Lord, that we would hold to your word always and uncompromisingly so, that we would find it to be our only authority. And Lord, we thank you for our mediator, your son, who the eternal one came down and took our own weak natures and entered a state of humiliation, always going down further to reach the lowest depths to save us who were there at the lowest reaches We thank you for this great blessing. We pray our lives would respond in true righteousness and obedience because of the gratitude that we have for our mediator. We pray this in his great name.